Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach, coming to you live from a bright, sunny day here in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We've got a big show for you today, one that is of particular importance to small development offices. And we know that this time of year is a very important fundraising time. Well, we've got an expert here coming up on page two, Amy Eisenstein, uh, who is one of the top experts in better fundraising for your small development operation, is right here live on the Nonprofit Coach when we get to page two. But those of you who are familiar with our show and those of you who are new today, we always start off on page one news. So let's get on to the news. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, and we are live here on the Nonprofit Coach. You can follow along with the radio links. That means the top news here on the Nonprofit Coach by clicking on tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. You can follow along, and the first story that you're going to find uh, today is just an update on who controls the global online advertising market. You're not going to be surprised by the fact that this is Google, but the numbers are astounding. Google currently controls 44 percent of all global online advertising. The nearest uh, competitor to Google is Yahoo, who only commands 8.3%, and that is down uh, from 9.6%. You can read all about it over in the radio links. It also gives you a look at where the Internet falls, uh, and it is only second now uh, to television, which still uh, has a larger uh, comparative number for overall advertising. Uh, You can see the numbers continuing to drop for a newspaper, Uh, and a little bit of an uptick for radio, and all the details are in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, as you know, uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we always want to bring you the top leaders of what's happening in the nonprofit sector uh, today. A very important new study has been released called The State of Grant Seeking, 
Fall 2011. Uh, today we have Ellen Maurer here uh, with us uh, who has an update for us uh, from this report that comes to us from Grant Station and Philantech. Uh, hello, Ellen. Thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Hello, Ted. Thank you for having me. This is uh, great today, to have you. Where are you joining us from today? Well, although Grant Station is in Fairbanks, Alaska, I am calling you from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, I thought maybe you were up with the folks up in uh, uh, Fairbanks. Uh, Cynthia Adams has been a longstanding friend here of the nonprofit coach. So tell us what's going on. This is, uh, I understand, uh, the third semi-annual uh, survey of nonprofits. What did you folks learn in the State of Grant Seeking uh, survey that's just been released? The first thing that we learned is that despite reductions in the number of war awards and the size of the awards, those who work in fundraising, who work with non are truly a glass-half-full bunch of individuals. In fact, almost 78% of respondents feel that they're Future grand awards are going to increase or become larger if the number of awards does not increase. More importantly, we've learned that during the first six months of the year, they have applied for more grants, but those increased efforts have resulted in more grant awards for only 26% of the respondents. So it is so, so charitable uh, organizations are working harder to get grants. Um, they're out there writing more grant proposals, yet only uh, about a quarter of them are actually seeing more grants come in for the additional effort. That's correct. We also added a section to the survey this year called Challenges to Success where we ask those in the grant-seeking world what is their greatest challenge to successful grant-seeking. And that was illuminating. Uh, not only the economy cited as a major challenge to success, which in the grant-seeker's mind was both defined as increased competition for reduced funding and lack of time that was caused by less staff due to budget cuts, but they found that researching and finding grants specific to their missions was a major impediment to success as grant providers have tightened their requirements or are less willing to go outside of their innate category of support. So it's harder for more and more charities to find uh, grant makers who are likely to give to their particular type of charitable organization. Yet, as you said, um, with all of these uh, headwinds against nonprofit organizations that are seeking grants, you said there is still an optimistic bunch. There is still an optimistic feeling among those who responded to our survey. They strongly believe that their efforts are going to uh, come to a fruition in the next six months. 
your uh, study today is particularly uh, apropos to our page two expert today, Amy Eisenstein, who's going to be talking to us about 50 asks in 50 weeks. Um, and her, her book of that title is all about fundraising for the small development operation. More than half of those in your, um, in your survey that we're talking about right now have budgets over a million dollars. Um, do you feel that it's more difficult for smaller organizations to succeed in grant writing than it is for larger organizations? Yes, that's absolutely correct. In fact, the smaller organizations specifically find that due to budget cuts, they're now relying on board members or volunteers to write those grant proposals, but proposals written by board members and volunteers have a far less chance of resulting in an award than those written by professional grant writers or by employees of organization. Now, Ellen, I want to stop you right there because I, I, I want to accentuate what you what you just said. For smaller organizations, they do, of course, need to rely more on volunteers. But when it comes to grant writing, what you're finding is that this is not particularly a good place to leave grant writing in the hands of volunteers because what you're finding is that the percentage of awards from volunteer written grants is less than the percentage of awards coming from professionally written proposals. That's correct. Rather, those proposals are written by a grant writer or by an employee of the organization, yes. Yeah, that, that seems very significant to me in terms of some of the issues that we're going to be talking about on the show today, and I'm going to really want to learn um, more from Amy in terms of how do you deploy limited staff resources and how do you use volunteers in the fundraising for a small development office. And what you're saying is this study is very clear that this is, this is maybe not one of the areas to trim back. If you want to be successful in grant writing, you do need professional assistance. That's correct. And Ted, let me mention that besides the all-encompassing state of grant-seeking report, we also have made available a series of nonprofit sector reports, data broken out from the overall analyses on areas such as youth development, education, uh, human services, and I believe three or four more that are available to individuals who have a sector-specific interest. In fact, this report is available for free download. You can get it by either going to grantstation.com and clicking on their RSS feed, or by going to philantech.com, P-H-I-I-N-T-E-C-K.com, and there's a link to the free download for this report on their homepage. If you have organizations who do have an interest in the sector-specific reports, they can obtain those by emailing info at grantstation.com. That's great. Well, thank you for providing that information. Also, for our guests, we have provided a link in the radio links today directly uh, to uh, this important uh, announcement uh, today about the state of grant-seeking fall 2011. That's available at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. 
you'll be able to go directly there. Ellen Maurer from Grant Station, thank you for uh, joining us today. Just a program note that I think uh, Ellen will be uh, particularly interested in, uh, and that is uh, her colleague uh, in uh, in this report uh, will be uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach on January 20th. Uh, we will uh, have uh, Dana Goldstein, the founder of Philantech, uh, com here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach Very Special, the Green Show monthly magazine uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach. So I, I thought, Ellen, you might be interested to know that we will have a full hour with uh, Dana, who was your partner in this study. She was indeed, and uh, really working with both Philantech and Grant Station is a wonderful opportunity to the resilience that nonprofit show in the face of economic downturns, uh, the respondents were inspiring. Well, Ellen, thank you. Your report is, of course, important to everyone who is trying to manage their own office. Uh, we're going to continue on with Page One News. Uh, please stick around if you would like to. Uh, this has been Ellen Maurer with Grant Station sharing with us all the most up-to-date information that is available in the brand-new State of Grant Seeking Fall 2001 report. Back here on Page One News comes to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. You'll find over in the radio links today that Twitter has redesigned its offerings and that this offers new options for nonprofit organizations. Twitter has unveiled a design a redesign to its site and tools that offers many new features that could affect nonprofits, including the addition of special pages that allows organizations and companies uh, a chance to promote themselves. The new brand pages are something that you want to spend some time with. There's also some changes to TweetDeck, a popular social media management software. Of course, here on the Nonprofit uh, Coach, uh, we recommend Hootsuite as our social media management uh, software program, but you can read all about this from the Chronicle of Philanthropy in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, of course, uh, uh, each month uh, we are pleased to welcome Susan McDermott here on the Nonprofit Coach. She always brings us good news about the next AFP Wiley special radio program here on the Nonprofit Coach, which is going to take place next week, our special holiday show. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach once again, Susan McDermott. Hey, Ted. How are you doing? Susan, you were with us uh, last week with some good news, but uh, this is such a, an important and special show. We wanted to bring you back just to accentuate uh, the importance of everyone tuning in next week at 12 noon Eastern. What's going to happen next week? Oh, next week your special holiday guest um, is going to be uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace, an internationally acclaimed independent consultant, speaker, facilitator, and writer. She's the author of two books for Wiley and several books for other publishers, and um, just about anybody who listens to your show is going to find something important and impactful from uh, from your conversation with her. She's an amazing, an amazing woman. She really is, and and has has been uh, such an icon in our industry uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, she's been instrumental in mentoring many uh, very fortunate uh, fundraisers along the years. Uh, what's very interesting to me is that Kay Sprinkle Grace was our holiday guest last year, and it remains the highest uh, rated, uh, highest listened uh, to show uh, in the history of the nonprofit coach. To what do you uh, attribute that? kind of following 
I mean, I think it's just uh, how relatable she is. She, um, she, uh, you know, I, I've enjoyed many conversations with her over the years. I've known her now for 11 years since I've been at Wiley, and um, I, I just think that she, uh, she presents her. She presents information in in a really understandable manner, and um, and she's she's just she's interesting. She's got great experience, great. Um, stories to tell, and um, I, as I said, just so relatable. Uh, I, I, I think that um, I think your your listeners next week are going to be in for a real treat. So, uh, uh, Susan, this is our special holiday show. Being our special holiday show, it will be the final show of 2011. So we do want to ask everyone uh, to mark your calendars that there will not be a live nonprofit coach show on December 27th uh, or on January 3rd. Uh, However, our podcast will remain available, of which there are over 70 podcasts available here of the nonprofit coach. After the holidays, uh, Susan, we're going to be coming back uh, to another very, important show, and that is on January 10th, Mark Hammond, the Secretary of State for South Carolina, will be here on the Nonprofit Coach to talk about their work in charity ethics and the annual report that they put out on Angels and Scrooges, uh, the best and the worst of charitable organizations. So uh, to uh, go from Case Sprinkle Grace, uh, who is uh, uniquely qualified to help charities uh, succeed during the holidays, to really starting the year off uh, with a very important important uh, report uh, directly from the Secretary of State for South Carolina. Susan, uh, right after that, on January 17th, uh, is going to be the official public release of the Atlas of Giving 2011 Annual Giving Data Report and the 2012 Forecast of Giving with expert Rob Mitchell. Right here on the Nonprofit Coach, the Atlas of Giving is going to be using the Nonprofit Coach as their official launch platform, and I think for everybody to start the year off with a forecast of giving uh, based on data, not just on gut, is going to be a really uh, important way to start off uh, the the, uh, the new show. Uh, and then you're going to be back uh, announcing uh, for us uh, the AFP Wiley uh, uh, radio show for uh, January, which is going to take place on January 24th. So uh, Susan McDermott from John Wiley & Sons, uh, we're thrilled that you're bringing us Kay Sprinkle Grace next week on the AFP Wiley, very special show for the holidays. You have a wonderful uh, holiday season, and uh, we'll chat with you again in the new year. Thanks so much, Ted, and the same to you and uh, to all of your listeners. Happy holidays. Take care. Bye now. We're going to wrap up here on page one news. And don't forget, uh, we're going to be uh, running right into our page two expert, Amy Eisenstein. You don't want to miss the opportunity to call in and ask questions at 347-324-3080 as you get ready for page two. Remember, you can join us uh, in the chat room. I see a a number of people over in the chat room uh, today. You can ask questions uh, there. Um, I also want to give a very special uh, shout out uh, today, thank you to Diana Olson, uh, who is joining us over in the chat room uh, today and has uh, marked us as a popular show on Blog Talk Radio. You can do that uh, on our link directly at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Uh, links and it will take you right to our page on Blog Talk Radio. So, Diana, thank you very much for joining us live today and giving us that shout out over on Blog Talk Radio. Next up here on page one news is a report uh, from Twitvid. Uh, this is a revamped service that now seeks to become the open YouTube. Since its launch in 2009, Twitvid has been the video alternative to TwitPic. 
So those of you who have been uh, very active over on Twitter knows that TwitPick is the way that you can share photos in your social stream. But on Tuesday, today, uh, TwitVid is turning its site into a community for sharing all web videos, user-created or not. This open YouTube will eventually allow users to post video from anywhere on the web. It's uh, starting with YouTube, Vimeo, uh, TwitVid videos, each user now has a stream that can be followed by others. Uh, this is a, potentially a big boost for nonprofit organizations seeking to incorporate video not only into their operations, but into their social networking as well. Uh, last uh, note here on page one news, since we've had so much discussion today about uh, Twitter and the importance of uh, Twitter, I do want to remind all of our listeners that you can join us uh, on Twitter, and the uh, Twitter tag for this show is at Ted Hart, uh, so that's twitter.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, you can join us. Uh, when the newsletter went out just yesterday, we had 1,512 followers over on Twitter. I'm very pleased to say that as of today, we have 1,517. Uh, so let's see uh, who the 1,518th follower uh, here of this show and at Ted Hart is going to be. And with that, I'm very pleased to wrap up page one, and let's get right over to the very important page two. Amy Eisenstein, CFRE, is a principal and owner of TriPoint Resources, a full-service consulting firm for nonprofit organizations and foundations. Her firm serves a wide variety of social service, educational, and healthcare organizations. Before creating TriPoint Resources, Amy served for more than 10 years in the nonprofit sector as a director of development for both large and small nonprofit organizations. These included the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, the associate uh, alumni of Douglas College at Rutgers University, and Shelter Our Sisters, a battered women's shelter. For these organizations, she raised millions of dollars through event planning, grant writing, capital campaigns, direct mail, as well as major and planned giving. Um, she's a frequent speaker at conferences, well regarded throughout our profession. She has served on the board of directors of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, New Jersey chapter, uh, and was the chair of the 2010 New Jersey Conference on Philanthropy. Most importantly, she is the author of 50 Acts in 50 Weeks, and she is our page two expert here today on The Nonprofit Coach. Welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach, Amy Eisenstein. Thanks, Ted. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you here, and, and such a, an important, easy-to-read book, easy-to-approach book. Um, let's start off with uh, from the beginning. Uh, Amy, tell us a little bit about this In the Trenches series that you're a part of uh, and uh, where uh, folks can find this book. Yeah, well, the In the Trenches series is a creation of Charity Channel. Uh, a new offshoot of Charity Channel is Charity Channel Press, and they have almost 10 books now published in their first year. And the In the Trenches series is really for people on the ground in nonprofits who are busy out there doing the work of nonprofits, don't have tons and tons of time, but want to get some additional tools and resources and knowledge. So the books are quick reads, uh, easy to use, have lots of um, 
worksheets and, and tools to help busy people who are actually in the in the trenches of nonprofits doing the work um, do better in their, at their jobs. In your uh, book, Amy, you uh, thank Stephen Nill, who is the founder and CEO of Charity Channel, for recognizing you as new talent uh, and taking a chance on you as a first-time author. Uh, you certainly are well-regarded uh, throughout our profession. You speak uh, regularly um, to high regard at conferences. Um, why this series uh, and why Charity Channel for your first book? Yeah, I was excited uh, to work with Charity Channel. They have provided me as a first-time author with an amazing opportunity to tell my story to small development shops and uh, development professionals in smaller to mid-sized organizations, really the way I see it to help them raise more money. And actually, I'm working on a second and third book with Charity Channel. The next one will be out this spring, so I'm excited to be with them. Well, I hope that uh, you'll come back and release your book here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach. One of the things that I like about the beginning of your book um, is uh, start some true confessions that, that perhaps uh, some of our listeners have, uh, have experienced. Uh, you say that in 1998 you hated fundraising, um, <laughs> that you had visions of cold calls and clammy hands. Uh, what's happened since 1998 to uh, change you uh, into a fundraiser? Yeah, it was interesting. I was in graduate school at the time, and I was going to school uh, for nonprofit management and public administration. I really wanted to be an executive director, so I knew I wanted to be a leader in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I just thought nonprofits can't run without fundraising, but I really didn't know anything about it. I mean, all I knew was bake sales and car washes from high school and college, um, and I didn't understand what professional fundraising was all about. So, of course, I thought it was cold calls, and it just seemed like an awful task. Uh, but I got into fundraising because I knew if I wanted to help operate successful nonprofits, I would need, it would be something I needed to do. Um, and to my complete and total surprise, um, fundraising clearly isn't about cold calling at all. And I absolutely fell in love with the field um, because it gives me an opportunity to help so many people uh, do such amazing work. So it's just been a blessing for me, and I just love teaching it to others. Amy, since uh, today is really all about the basics and helping our listeners, regardless of whether or not they're more seasoned in their career, I always think that a show like this is important for folks who are seasoned because they are mentoring and probably have the opportunity either in their own staff or in, in other staffs to help others. So having those tools to be able to uh, share um, the art of fundraising uh, with others is important. And we also have a number of listeners uh, of the show today uh, who are new or relatively new to uh, to fundraising. Uh, so let's start off with some of the basics here. You say that uh, fundraising uh, is not about the cold call. If it's not about that, what is it about? Yeah, well, for anybody who's been in fundraising for more than a few weeks, uh, I hope you know it's about relationship building. Uh, fundraising is really at its core about finding people who care about a particular cause uh, and making a match, I should say, between an organization and individuals who are passionate about the mission and about the organization's work. So really uh, building relationships between organizations and people who want to do the same thing. 
And, and how, how do you start building those relationships? In your chapters, uh, you start off by saying getting started, uh, what you need to know. I'm guessing that one of the things uh, that you need to know is this uh, focus on relationships. What else is important to, uh, to know before you even get started in fundraising? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I just want to make a comment before we get to that about um, what you said before. What has surprised me about the book is the number of people who have been in the field for a long time, 10 or more years, who find such value in the book. I had written it primarily for beginners or people just getting into the field, but people who have been there a while, if they're at a smaller shop where they're the only development person, this provides real reinforcement, encouragement, enthusiasm. So it's actually been a great tool for people who are even seasoned in the field just to get back to the basics. So I just wanted to throw in that um, as well. Let's accentuate that a little bit more because I I think it is uh, possible to be in the sector for a while and to move away from uh, from the, uh, the basics um, by reminding people of, of the basics that we're talking about today, um, how does that affect the ask? I mean, do you, can you uh, be seasoned in this profession and kind of uh, lose sight of what really works? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think the the problem that I saw being in small development shops myself, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because I think when you are in an organization and you are the only professional paid fundraiser and you're expected to do it all, which is what people in small shops are expected to do, they're grant writing, they're event planning, they're database managers, they're in charge of thank you notes, um, and asking people for money, that unfortunately often asking gets moved to the back burner or to the bottom of the list And so even though uh, seasoned professionals are working really hard in their small development shops, they may be uh, writing newsletters and tinkering with databases um, and planning events. And unfortunately, even though those things indirectly lead to raising more money, um, they're not out asking. And so they're not raising nearly as much as they could be um, if they brought asking back to the front burner, which is what I encourage people to do. And how do you do that with a, with a small off, uh, office? Um, you just uh, I think you were uh, listening uh, to Page One News today, and we have this new study out uh, about uh, grant writing um, that does fall on the shoulders of the paid professional. Um, but uh, when you're trying to uh, expand your own time uh, available to do the right thing in your fundraising, how do you balance that in working with volunteers? Yeah, I think... I will answer the question two ways. One is I think it's important to have a plan. And so many um, individuals are are so busy that they don't bother to make the plan and they bounce from one thing, one event to the next or one grant to the next. And they don't have a, a specific plan that they're following which really would help them keep on track. Uh, With regard to grant writing and whether to use volunteers or not, this is where I love to use volunteers. And that is really in the building relationships area. So if you have volunteers that have connections to foundations or corporations with foundations or um, individuals who might be interested in donating, those are the places to really uh, use your volunteers, leverage those networks, And then in office or subcontracted out to a grant writing professional, um, be able to get those 
actual applications written, but really using those volunteers to make sure that you're as connected as you can possibly be. And, and in doing that, get, getting back to these basics and, and what you need to uh, to know, if you're focused on uh, relationships and you're, say, a, a sole uh, development officer, you have a very small office, um, how do you prioritize and get into what you call the fundraising cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. So the the first step, there's four parts to the fundraising cycle that professional fundraisers go through. The first is identification. And unfortunately or surprisingly, I find that lots of people in development shops don't even know who their best donors are or their best prospective donors. So the first thing to do is to identify who are your best prospective donors or your best current donors. And really the place to look is hopefully in your database. If you've had uh, any history, recorded history of donors from events or from direct mail, you should be able to quickly identify who have been your biggest and most loyal and best donors over the past few years. And that's who you want to target first. And I think that people often get lost in targeting everyone, and therefore they don't do a good job with anyone. And I recommend even starting with your top 10 or 15 donors uh, so that you have people to focus on to fundraise from. Well, and so, so what you're saying is be very, very targeted uh, and focus on, on the data. Do you find that uh, uh, professional seasoned or, or not um, tend to focus too much on new money um, and not really focusing on the relationships that got you where you are today? Yeah, definitely. I think I think absolutely that's true, that you focus on whatever new gift is coming in or whatever next gift you're hoping for, and you're not paying as close attention for the most part to the established, established relationships. Now, you say that uh, your board members are fundraisers and that they need to be fundraisers, but yet some board members don't feel comfortable in that role. What's the role of the development officer to pull all of that together, to bring them into, and, and how do you actually do that? Is there a step-by-step -step to bring board members into the fundraising fold? Yeah, I think there's a couple of key things. One is making sure that you're providing your board members with ongoing training, fundraising training, because I think we make the mistake too often of assuming that board members who are often professionals in the community would know how to fundraise, but that's often not the case. And most people who are not fundraisers um, in their hearts are not comfortable with fundraising. So it is an ongoing effort to talk with your board members about fundraising, lay out clear expectations about what you are looking for from them, and immediately and in the short run, not all of your board members are going to be great at asking people, but they can get involved in other parts of the process. They can get involved in identifying people that might be good for asking for money. They can get involved in the thank you process. They can get involved in cultivation just by bringing more people on tours of your organization or being good advocates uh, for your organization. So there's, there's lots of ways that board members can get involved, but we need to train them ongoing, if possible, at every board meeting, um, at annual retreats, and continuously tell them what we want from them and set out very clear expectations. And 
I think the other thing that we can do with board members is recruit them properly. A big mistake I see nonprofits making is telling board members, oh, come join our board, but you don't really need to fundraise. You don't really need yeah, to Yeah, I mean, fundraise. how dangerous is that? I, I'm always surprised. Uh, where do people think the money comes from? Yeah, I think that some nonprofits are perceive themselves to be so desperate to have people on their boards that they don't think through what damage they're doing uh, to themselves as an organization in the long term by recruiting people and telling them that they don't have to be involved in fundraising. I think it's just a huge mistake. And then, of course, when you turn around ultimately three months later and they're on the board and you're asking them to fundraise, everybody's surprised and annoyed. Um, so I think about recruiting people at the onset with an expectation of giving and helping with fundraising is critical um, and laying out what your expectations are, like I said. Now, one of the expectations that you mentioned uh, is uh, important uh, is achieving 100% participation from the board. Now, of course, just in pure dollars, that sounds like a good idea, but are there other reasons for that? Yes, absolutely. You want 100% participation from your board members, meaning every board member is going to make a personal gift to the charity. And that's so important because when you're going to go out and do fundraising from other people, um, there's a couple reasons. One is if you can't convince your own board members, who are in theory the closest people to your organization, they know most intimately your programs and services, they're passionate about your mission, and they have an understanding, hopefully, about your budget and the gaps in your budget and the needs. Um, if you can't convince those people to give, you're going to have a heck of a hard time convincing anybody else to give. But not only that, other donors and grant funders uh, are actually interested in knowing that you have a 100% commitment from your board members. Um, these days, lots of times you'll see that on grant applications, because why should they invest in your nonprofit if your own board members aren't? Yeah, I mean, those that know you best, if, if they don't feel that you're worthy of financial support, um, then how can you possibly expect that others would want to give? That's right. So in uh, in your uh, in your chapter or, or in your book, um, you talk about specific ways um, to help board members understand their fi financial responsibility. I gather that you feel that that um, really ties into their requirement to help with fundraising. Yes, absolutely. I think board members need to understand at the onset that they're going to participate at least in some way. Listen, I know that. Some board members are never going to be comfortable with asking, even if we provide them with all of our expectations and directions and training. They're just not going to get there. So it's up to us as professionals to figure out what other ways they can get involved and make sure that everybody has a role in fundraising and that everybody's giving at least a minimum gift. Um, but we like to say that board members should be giving um, a meaningful gift for them for their mm -hmm. own personal budget. I, I Let me just run this by you because this is one of the things that, that, that I share and uh, I'm wondering where this fits within your philosophy. I, I always tell folks that uh, board members, if you're going to serve on a board of directors, you, you, you need to be seriously considering uh, making that charity at the very least number three. And what I mean by number three is that most people are charitable. Most people uh, may give to their house of worship. 
Uh, they may give to their alma mater. Those are things that are important and very close to uh, to a number of people. Uh, and in the list of charities that you support, you you want the charities that you are serving on the board of directors to at least be number three uh, in um, the amount of money that you give in the rankings of your own philanthropic support, if not number two, if not number one, depending on how uh, you rank your overall giving. As sort of a guideline for board members, um, how does that sound to you? Yeah, actually, I think I may even have that exact um, philosophy in my book. I think I lay it out. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that, but if it's yeah. there, I'm, I'm very pleased. No, that, no I, I completely agree with you, and I give the example. You know, I was at a board retreat once, and I was telling people exactly that, that, that this needs to be in their top three charities. Hopefully they're one or two, but definitely the third slot. Um, and I was giving the example of a woman who – gives $1,000 to her house of worship, to her church, $1,000 to the local hospital, and only $100 to this board that she sits on. And I said, you know, that example shows that her giving is way out of whack for that particular charity that she serves on the board of. And once I talk about it in the top three, then, you know, you see the light bulbs go off. People understand what you're asking for. I think that sometimes the reason that board members are undergiving to charities that they serve on the boards of is that they have not really been asked for anything specific and they don't know how much they're expected to give. Um, and so and what, what's the power of, uh, of board giving in terms of competition between board members and, and then leveraging board support uh, into other giving? Yeah, I think it can be huge. I mean, you know, it depends on the culture of the board and the culture of the organization how effective a competition is going to be. But I've seen it be really effective where the board chair steps up and says, I'm giving $10,000 and I'd like to see all the other board members combined at least give that. Or, you know, whatever kind of competition you want to promote or they get an outside grant maker to, um, to match what the board members give or something like that, I think it can be a really powerful tool. I, I often uh, speak to uh, organizations, particularly at holiday time, about the power of multiplying gifts to to use uh, gifts either from the board or from other organizations to inspire others to give at a particular time. Um, how does that work? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of different ways that it can work. Um, challenge grants and challenge giving, certainly in terms of leveraging one gift to get more gifts. I think people probably are very familiar hearing about it on NPR and such. They'll always say, you know, we have a challenge gift at this point, so if you make your donation now, it'll be double or triple or worth more. Um, and I think some organizations have a lot of success with that kind of um, challenge giving. Don't forget you can call in and ask a question of our page two expert today, Amy Eisenstein, the author of 50 Asks in 50 Weeks, by dialing 347-324-3080. Uh, just press the number one to let me know that uh, you would like to ask a question. You can ask questions over in the chat room, or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, and we do have uh, an email question from Jillian in Dallas, um, and she's asking about board members' role in direct mail. Yeah, I think that board members can have a great impact on your direct mail results. 
they can do a couple of things. One is they can author the letter, so they can be the signer at the bottom of the letter, maybe your board chair, board president, or development chair. Um, tell their own story in the letter as to why the charity is important to them or a success story from the charity. But more even, I was going to say more importantly, but equally as important, uh, they can write personal notes on the appeal letters to their friends. So by providing a list of ten names or coming in with labels, they'll say, I want to um, send an appeal letter from this charity to my ten neighbors and friends or colleagues. And then handwrite notes on the inside. That will significantly increase uh, your return rate. I've also had board members handwriting the outside envelope so that it looks more like a personal letter um, and having them write their name at the top where the return address goes. So Amy, doesn't that go back to where you started this show um, in emphasizing relationships? Because I think um, you know, in, in your book you talk about, uh, um, I'm just trying to get to that chapter, about uh, making bulk uh, solicitations less bulky. Um, doesn't this tie into that whole notion of relationships? Yeah, definitely. The more personal you can make bulk mail, uh, the better your chances are. Absolutely. It's all about relationships, people asking other people for money. Um, yeah. And so in thinking through board member involvement, um, it, it seems to me that uh, it really does matter who's the chair of the board. I mean, can, can, are you going to have a more difficult time incorporating board members into fundraising if you don't have the right person as chair? Yes, definitely. I can't tell you how often I've had conversations with organizations where they tell me that the board chair is not behind the fundraising efforts or the board chair isn't giving or unwilling to um, ask for money, and my response is always the same. You know, you have to get rid of that board chair. They are doing nothing for your organization if they're not participating in the fundraising process. It's a major issue. Uh, and, and now you're bringing up a, uh, a, a very sensitive topic, get rid of the board chair. Yeah. Um, how how do you transition to a more effective board chair? Yeah, I think that it's it's a challenge, and lots of organizations are struggling with it. I think that the slowest way is to wait out that board chair's term and uh, let them turn over naturally. That could take two or three years, unfortunately. Um, Quicker, more effective ways would be to sit down and have a frank conversation with the board chair, hopefully with another board member or two. Not that the board chair, you don't want them to feel ganged up on, but maybe if another board member or two were to take them out for coffee or meet them at an office somewhere and have a conversation about why the fundraising is so critical and where the organization wants to go, and where it can't go if it doesn't fundraise more, um, and and have a conversation and see how the board chair feels, if they feel that it's the right position for them or if they feel like maybe they want to serve in a different capacity. And I always say when you are getting ready to, uh, you know, fire a, a board member or a volunteer, which I feel you can do, make sure that you have another place for them to serve in the organization, offer them other volunteer positions, make sure that they know how grateful you are that for their service 
um, and that you're not just banishing them from the organization, but maybe the role that they're in isn't the best role for them at this time. Well, and that, that is a, a, an important uh, uh, message in terms of getting other board members involved in, in the process because if you want to raise money, uh, even, if, even if you have a large fundraising office, which I know we have a, a number of very seasoned fundraisers who may have larger offices listening today, um, there's still the challenge of proper engagement of the board of directors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amy. I mean, um, as uh, we're just going to take a, a really quick break, uh, and when we come back, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, to focus on uh, the fundraising pyramid. Uh, help us understand it, and why does it work? Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Over in the radio links today, you'll find the uh, Wiley uh, Holiday Bookstore. We're very pleased that uh, with a partnership with Amazon, all of the books uh, in the fundraising and social media section, uh, including my books, Internet Management for Nonprofits, uh, Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, People to People Fundraising, Nonprofit Internet Strategies, Fundraising on the Internet, Major Donors, Finding Big Gifts in Your Database and Online are all available in the Holiday Bookstore, and they are all available at reduced prices and are eligible for free super saver shopping. Find that over in the radio links today for the Holiday Bookstore uh, as an extra bonus today over in the radio links at tedhart.com. We've also provided you with a direct link uh, to this awesome book that we're talking about today, authored by Amy Eisenstein, part of the In the Trenches series, 50 Asks in 50 Weeks is also available by direct link over in the radio links today. We're going to head right back over to the show. Amy, just a reminder to our listeners, we do have a number of people on the switchboard, uh, but I don't know if you wanted to ask a question unless you press the number one that tells me on the switchboard. You, of course, are always welcome to call in and just listen live, uh, so you don't need to ask a question if you don't want to, but that number is 347-324-3080. Amy, anybody who's been around fundraising um, has seen the fundraising pyramid but why is it important and what significance does it have to making 50 asks in 50 weeks? Okay, so the fundraising pyramid is a diagram, a visual to help people. Uh, The top of your triangle or your pyramid would be your top donors, and the bottom would, of course, be your base, and the middle-level gifts in the middle. Um, And so if you're looking at any traditional fundraising pyramid, the fewest people are at the top of the pyramid making the largest gift. And that's where you want to focus your efforts. So knowing who's at the top of your pyramid um, is critical and the ability to try and move people up. So your goal is to take people who are at the base of your pyramid, giving through annual giving or direct mail, 25 or or $100 a year, moving them up to more mid-level gifts, whether it's $1,000 a year or $5,000 a year, um, and then on up the pyramid. But really, your focus, the top few givers to your organization are giving the bulk of the dollars, whether you know it or not. So the top of that pyramid is are the most critical and important people to your organization, and that's where your focus really needs to be. 
Now, Amy, it's said that a mature fundraising program is going to be raising 80% of its money from 20% of its donors, or in, in some cases, 90% of its money from 10% uh, of its donors. Why is that the case? Um, I think that th that's just the principle um, in in most cases. I don't actually know why it is, but if you have one person giving a million dollars and then you have um, a million people giving one dollar, uh, that's, that's how it works. Uh, maybe that was a terrible example. But anyways, um, you know, your top few givers are giving the big gifts make up significantly more than all your little givers combined. Um, and that's the way a fundraising pyramid works in traditional fundraising. So you really want to target and focus on those top, top donors. Now, at the bottom of the pyramid, I often refer to uh, to those as donors with training wheels uh, because they're, they haven't really made a strong commitment to your organization. They're sort of trying you on for size. What are some of the things that you can do in 50 weeks that can uh, bring people out of being sort of uh, donors with training wheels to being more committed givers? Yeah, I think it's about the cultivation process, which is step two in the fundraising cycle, and really making sure that you're doing everything you can to build relationships with those people. So you're not going to be able necessarily to meet with all of them face-to-face -face if you have a whole bunch of smaller donors, but that's where your bulk efforts uh, are going to pay off and your social media efforts, so making sure that you have an active social media presence and campaign going on to keep those people engaged and involved, make sure that you're sending them updates, uh, reports, newsletters, and how their money was spent is key, um, and really keeping those people engaged, giving them volunteer opportunities and opportunities to come to your um, organization, take tours, and come to events. Uh, really making sure that you can involve them. But I did want to say quickly about some of those little donors. I was in a board meeting last night, and somebody said that at another organization there was a $25 donor over a period of time uh, who left a $200,000-plus bequest. And so it's really important to know who your loyal donors over time are as well, even if they're not your big donors, and focusing on them as well is key. And, and why is um, it the case that it takes um, – it, it, what I really want to do is focus on this 50 asks in 50 weeks. Um, it, what, what can be accomplished in 50 weeks, and, and where does 50 asks come in? I mean, I know it's sort of a round number, but, you know, for our smaller nonprofits that are listening to us today, it's intriguing to think that that could actually happen. But why not 100 asks? Yeah, well, in my experience working with lots and lots of – organizations, big and small, with only a few people in the development office, I found that they were making far fewer than 50 asks a year. And so 50 asks obviously works out to about one a week. Of course, I know there's two extra weeks, but you need two weeks vacation, right? Um, so you need to do approximately one ask a week. Now, if your organization is only doing 10 or 15 asks a year, it's impractical to think that you would get up to 50 um, in the coming year. But really, it's a good goal to have. And I just lay it out in the book so that you're looking at uh, a dozen or so grant applications, a dozen or two individuals that you're going to meet with face-to-face, -face, 
planning your calendar around a dozen or so um, email and bulk mail solicitations or communications and then um, sponsorship asks. So we lay out how to keep your funding base really diverse and also make sure that you're asking frequently at least once a week for, for a significant gift. So it, it really sounds that your approach and your advice um, today is very much focused on reasonable expectations on what the outcomes can be, but also staying very focused rather than every idea being a good idea, let's do all of the above. But if you're going to succeed in 50 weeks, you need to have a plan and you need to be methodical in the execution of that plan. That's right. So what, what um, uh, just taking a look at the fact that uh, we only have a few moments left, Amy, it's amazing uh, how time flies uh, on, uh, on these shows. Um, how do you uh, pull together, um, you, you have a, a board expectations form uh, in your book, and I want you to know what is the role of this give and get. And, again, I keep coming back to the board, but it seems to me that if you're a small development staff, you really have to focus on getting the board involved because you simply don't have enough hands. That's right. Uh, the board is critical. I have the board expectation form and the board job description in the book to show people really what you can expect board members to do. And actually, once you have the board expectation form, which a board member fills out and signs annually, you know, we were talking about how to get rid of an underperforming board chair or board member. You can take back this form to them and said, you know, at the beginning of the year, you agreed to do X, Y, and Z, help with fundraising, make a donation, bring three people to events, and, you know, did you do these things? And when they didn't, you can say, okay, you know, is this a, an appropriate position for you? And so it can be really used to keep board members on task and on track um, and keep them accountable, which is really important for small shops to make sure that all It's also important to make them feel that they're partners in the process as opposed to, you know, I think that the, the desire on the part of a lot of boards of directors is, you know, let's hire ourselves one of those fundraiser types and they'll take it from here. Yes. I think it is the job of the staff to make sure that board members know that they're critical to the process and that they can't, that paid professionals can't do it in a vacuum. They absolutely need the support and networks and expertise of the board members in the room to help make fundraising really work. I always try to explain uh, when I'm working with boards of directors to help them understand that the chief fundraisers of the organization are the board members and volunteers, and when you hire a development officer, You've done exactly that. That's the person who helps develop and organize the opportunities for people to give. And understanding those delineated roles helps the organization really accentuate the opportunities for success. Yes, absolutely. As we uh, wind down here on uh, this edition of The Nonprofit Coach, I just want to remind everybody that we will be back next week for our very special holiday show with Sprinkle Grace. Uh, as we wrap up here today, Amy, help our listeners know how they can reach you. Oh, thank you. My website is www.tripointfundraising. It's T-R-I point P-O-I-N-T fundraising.com. Um, and I can be emailed at amy, A-M-Y, at tripointfundraising.com as well. 
Amy Eisenstein, thank you so much for writing this book, 50 Asks in 50 Weeks, the Trenches series. Uh, we're wrapping up our show here today, and I want to, again, uh, invite everybody to join us for our year-end special next week and then to mark your calendars as we come back in the new year on January 10th. Amy, thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.